Ag State of Mind, episode 109. Welcome to Ag State of Mind, a podcast that examines the stresses affecting producers of agriculture and how to alleviate these stresses and improve farmers' lives. In this podcast, we discuss openly the mental health crisis that is occurring in the agricultural community and what we can do to help turn it around. Now here's your host, Jason Meadows. Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Ag State of Mind podcast, a proud member of the Global Ag Network. I am your host, Jason Meadows. Today we continue with Sober October and we talked to my friend Daniel Hayes. And as you'll soon find out, Daniel has an incredible story and journey of overcoming addiction, overcoming so many things to really thrive in his life and to have a story of how having God in his life had changed all that he is. And, you know, he was, I, I compare him to the Egyptian legend of the Phoenix that would burn and, and rise from the ashes. It's just, it's an incredible story. And I, I hope that you enjoy this and I hope that you share this with other people because it's, it is a, it's an incredible, remarkable story. Um, Daniel and I, we connected over our mutual friend, Clay Connery's podcast. And, uh, we, I am so thankful for that and so thankful for the opportunity that I had to share Daniel's story because it is one of inspiration. So here we go with my episode with Daniel Hayes. All right, Daniel Hayes, welcome to the Ag State of Mind podcast. How are you, friend? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, of course. I'm doing this thing in October where I'm finding people who I've connected with over social media who have a story of recovery, you know, a story of you were once in a place where obviously you didn't want to be and it's you've been brought to a place where you know you're thriving and you're doing the things that making the choices that uh, are serving you. And I just want to hear, I want you to tell everybody a little bit about your story, you know, start off where you're from and, you know, just kind of go from there. So I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina and grew up in a pretty normal home, Christian home, went to a Christian school, was in church three times a week, Never saw my parents drink, never was exposed to any kind of drug use or anything like that. And I was a, I was a pretty good kid, got, got straight A's, never got in trouble. And when I went off to college, things kind of changed. And I'd always looked for a way to belong. And I'd always felt like I felt differently than other people in a way that I couldn't really describe. And started experimenting with alcohol, started experimenting with marijuana. And when I smoked weed, probably the third or fourth time, it was like a light went off in my head and it was, wow, this is how I'm supposed to feel. And very quickly it became something I wanted to feel all the time. Mm -hmm. So there was really no like stage where I smoked weed on the weekends with my friends. It was like, I didn't smoke weed. And then all of a sudden all I did was smoke weed. So you went from zero to all the time. I mean, just within a matter of weeks, probably. Wow. wow. Okay. And that 
wasn't horribly life altering. I still got to class. I still got good grades, but it very quickly devolved and very quickly got to the point where weed wasn't doing what I wanted it to. You just, you develop a tolerance to stuff pretty quickly. And then you're looking for that next thing that's going to, you know, press that button for you. And so I experimented with other stuff and I got kicked out of college for smoking weed and that should have been a wake up call, but it wasn't and ended up living in a house in a bad part of town and started experimenting with other drugs, hallucinogens and that kind of thing. And over the course of the next couple of years, I discovered opiates and that was really the next light bulb that went off. That was the next thing that really got my attention. <clears throat> and over a year of experimenting, I eventually became an IV heroin user. And there's no, there's definitely no just doing that on the weekends. That's kind of an all or nothing thing. And it very quickly took over my life <clears throat> and led me to a place that I really didn't want to be. My, my family, I wasn't in touch with them, except maybe to try to talk them into giving me money. And, and honestly, they did a really good job of not enabling me and not giving into those kinds of things. And and that's one thing um, that I credit the fact that I'm still alive to would be, first of all, that my mom prayed for me day and night uh, the entire time. And my, my dad prayed for me, too. But mostly what my dad did was make sure that he made my life difficult or not made my life difficult, but didn't make it easy, basically. And um, so my, the first real wake up call that I remember at the time I would have been kind of dealing on the side just to make ends meet as far as, you know, just trying to stay high. And there was a kid that I'd met who had just started using and he wasn't an IV user. He, he was just snorting heroin, which is a much safer thing to do, both from a disease transmission standpoint and a overdose standpoint. And uh, he asked me to show him how to use a needle and I did on like a Monday and by Wednesday he was dead of an overdose. And so I felt very responsible for that. And so that was my first experiment experience with trying to get clean. I went to a 30 day rehab program in North Carolina. And if 30 days is enough for you to get clean, then God bless you. It was not enough for me. It was just enough time for me to get my head a little bit clear and come up with some good plans of how to run back out. And um, so I went through that program and came home and tried to do the AA thing, tried to do the a NA thing, and ended up just meeting a whole bunch of people to new people to use with. And AA and NA work great for a lot of people, but unfortunately for me, I, my head wasn't in the right place and I wasn't looking for the right kind of people. So I ended up back out using again pretty quickly. I uh, ended up living in a Ford Ranger pickup truck and um, helping a guy basically shoplift professionally just to just to stay high and then ended up moving back to Charleston because at least I had friends there who'd let me sleep on their couch and ended up finally getting arrested for probably the most ridiculous reason ever which was for stealing cookie dough from a grocery store <laughs> And um, when the police came, they thought it was pretty ridiculous that the grocery store was actually wanting them to arrest me for stealing cookie dough. 
until they ran my license and found out that I had warrants for other stuff. And so I ended up doing 30 days in jail for stealing cookie dough because I had to deal with that charge before I could be extradited to deal with the other charges. And it was while I was in jail that I really realized, man, I'm not as tough as I think I am. Like I may, you know, want to live this, you know, kind of drug dealer lifestyle. I may think that's cool, but that's really not who I am. And there are real people in here that are a lot tougher and a lot more, whatever you want to call it than me. And started to realize all that I'd thrown away. Cause at this point I'm looking at a felony. <clears throat> I'm looking at a misdemeanor at a minimum. And so I start looking at what I've lost and you know, the opportunities that weren't going to be available to me anymore. And I very quickly decided, Hey, I, this is not the life I want. And that was enough to get me to commit to going to a long-term program. And by long-term, I went to one program for a short while that it just didn't work out. It was a two-year program. And then I actually moved into a one-year program down in Georgia called Waypoint. And um, Waypoint <clears throat> was very different than anywhere that I'd ever been before. Uh, the people that run that place are amazing. And I really felt loved. I really felt accepted in a way that I had never experienced, especially in the church. Church had always kind of been a place that you dressed up to go to, not a group of people that loved each other and took care of each other. And so I very quickly realized that something was different, but I was, I was very resistant to the idea of God and, and letting God be in control of my life because you know, I'd gone to church, I knew all that stuff and, and it hadn't worked and I'd ended up here in the first place. So what was going to be different now? And I just remember after I'd been there for probably a month, I was sitting on the back steps of the kitchen and I finally just gave in and said, you know what, God, I'm going to try it your way. And something shifted in me that day and it hasn't ever been the same since. And I was there for a year and by the time that I got out, sobriety is not something I struggle with anymore. Like, I, I don't want that life anymore. I don't want to use anymore. And I've got buddies who went through that program with me that were there the same number of days, you know, that we did everything the same. And they're back out on the street and out using again. And, and that's nothing to do with me, I don't believe. I've fully attribute that to a miracle that I just don't want to do it anymore. Cause frankly, I didn't have enough self-control to stay clean on my own. And so I've got to give all the credit to Jesus on that because I think he just took that desire to use away from me and, and just like formatively changed me as a person into the person I am today. So I got, I got out of rehab and I went to Anderson University almost exactly after I got out of rehab and met my wife within about 10 minutes of being there. Anderson University in Indiana? Or is that no, what? no. Okay. There's one in Indiana and one in South Carolina. Okay. 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 Yep. And I, I met my wife within hours of getting there. Wow. And we fell in love almost right off the bat and we've been together for six years now. I'll probably get in trouble because I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but <laughs> something like that. I've, I've been sober 
coming on eight years in July and we've, we've been married about a year less than that. Okay. So I guess seven years. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and, and everything didn't get all better. Um, I, I actually witnessed a fatal DUI within a couple months of being at college. I was actually the only person who saw it and, oh, wow. you know, dealing with that right after everything that I, you know, I was the only person on the scene. So I had to like, you know, help people and that kind of thing. Right, and, right. um, it, it was a test of my sobriety really quickly and right. Um, wow. And all that. And yeah, anyway, so we got married pretty quickly after that and decided college wasn't for us and got a, got real jobs and here we are. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. I want to take it back a little, you know, in your story and you, you said something about your parents about how they did a great job of not enabling you. And mm -hmm. I wonder, in fact, no, I don't really wonder. Um, I, I, I would almost say it's a fact that that might be the biggest reason some people never get the help and never get better is because they have so many people who not necessarily just like encourage them to do things, but are complacent. And I, that, I think that's one of the things that like I try really hard as a parent to be is not be an enabler. And mm -hmm. it sounds to me like, I mean, you went through your struggles, right? I mean, you, obviously there were, you had a lot of them, but I mean, it could have been a lot. It, it, there's no telling how bad it could have been if you didn't have it's hard to say the support, but the, you didn't have somebody really enabling you like, like a lot of people do. Yeah. yeah. If, if I'd been allowed to be comfortable, if I'd been, you know, financed, I, I don't know what would happen. And quite frankly, the heroin world is a lot scarier now than it was then. Yeah. There's a lot more overdoses than there were when I was, I was doing it. So I'm very grateful that I got out when I did. So fentanyl wasn't much of a thing then, I guess, as much as it, as prevalent as it is now, I guess I should. From say. what I understand, it was up north, but it hadn't really moved down here yet. Ah, okay, okay, okay. So then you mentioned something when you talked about Waypoint, about how it was just different. And you said you felt loved there, whereas everywhere else it didn't, you didn't get that well, I mean, what made, what made way, I mean, other than, you know, you saying that you really felt loved there, what made Waypoint different? We were allowed to feel what we felt and okay. without having to feel guilty about it. Mm, okay. Um, okay. You were, mad, you were encouraged to be mad. It didn't make it okay that you were mad. It didn't make the reason that you were okay legitimate, but it was okay for you to be mad about it. Okay. We were encouraged encouraged to feel things and encouraged to be okay with what we were feeling and, you know, not stay there, but move out from that. And that's something that we're really pushing as parents with our son. Cause, um, like for instance, one thing he likes to do is when he gets mad, he'll yell, it's all your fault. And I've been trying to get him to stop saying that for weeks. And the other day it just hit me and I was like, why do I care if he says it? I care a lot more about why he's saying it. I care a lot more mm -hmm. about what's going on in his brain and in his heart when he says that than I do about the fact that he says this thing that I don't like. 
but that that's a very good example of what waypoint was like it was like look deeper into what's going on with you we're not here to you know fix you because you like to stick a needle in your arm we're here to fix you because there's something broken inside of you that you feel like that's a legitimate option for a way to live life <laughs> um i see okay that, i mean because it is it's a very fine line there you know as far as getting the treatment getting the help you need but also it not being so draconian and so hard-nosed i mean it has to be there has to obviously be structure to it and there has to be discipline to it but there also has to be a a humanity to it and mm. I, I to me i would say that would be the finding that fine line is probably a really hard spot for for a lot of people absolutely and and it, it was a very strict program. I mean, I did I left for Christmas, but other than that, I didn't go home at all. I wasn't even allowed to like go out to eat with my parents when they came to visit or anything like that. Like it's a very strict, very intense program, but they make it very clear that you know these boundaries are here because we love you and because we want to see you succeed. These boundaries aren't here to punish you. Right. They're here because you make bad decisions and we're going to yeah. try to keep you from doing that. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean, and, you know, at a certain, you know, I'm sure at a certain point, I mean, you probably needed that. I mean, you, I mean, obviously you wean yourself off of that just like anything else. But I mean, at first, that's probably one of the biggest thing is actually having that structure to your life that was just probably totally gone for a certain period of time. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm, I like that you recognize that because I feel like so many people see rules and see structure as constrictive when in fact it's, it's necessary. It's actually more freeing. And I, I heard this somewhere and gosh, I, I can't remember where, but you know, when you have structure, it's actually more more of a freedom because then you know you know what you can do you know what you can where you can go and the things you can do there's not all these unknowns i think it was jordan peterson who i heard say that one time i'll have to read that again but i found that really interesting because people do people see rules they see laws they see so many things they're like oh that's constrictive that's that's uh, not in congruency with my freedom so then I'm just going to break it, you know, just to be free. And then that is just, that creates chaos. And I think you probably can attest to that. Your life was probably chaos. Absolutely. Um, once you got that structure, especially after a while, you probably felt that freedom. If, you know, what I, if, if you, if you catch my drift there. Yeah. And, and after I got out of the program and stepped into college life, because I mean, college life can be as structured or highly unstructured as you right. really want it to be. And my mom was like, hey, you need to get a gym membership because, you know, you enjoy working out, you enjoy exercising. And I very quickly put myself back into a structured situation. Mm. I, you know, I'd go swim every day. I'd ride my bike. I'd run. And that was just kind of how I filled those gaps mm -hmm. and kind of created my own structure after I got out. <clears throat> so what about the, and, and let me know if you don't feel comfortable answering anything. What about the relationship with your wife? Like, I mean, obviously you came into it and you had this history. It takes 
and I think you'll probably say this, obviously, since she's your wife, it takes somebody very special to be be open to sharing that with. So I'm just interested in what that was like for you. I'm not a person who beats around the bush or does well with not being very open with someone who I, I feel like I want to be close to. Mm-hmm. So I dropped the whole story on her maybe two days after we met. And she you was did, like, you wanted to get it out of the way. You didn't want that to be looming. Okay. Yep. Got it. Yeah. Don't, yeah. You don't want to like really like her and be, you know, two months in and be like, Oh, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but she's never seen me the way I was then because I was a very different person. I was very hungry for anything that I could get from, from anybody. Mm-hmm. And I was manipulative. I was, you know, I'd take whatever I could get. And fortunately she's never seen that side of me. She's seen that side of me. That's not completely true, but she hasn't seen it as it, as it could have been. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she was, we were very, very specially prepared for each other. She was having some, um, some struggles with having panic attacks and stuff like that. And I was pretty well equipped to help with that, having just been through a year of therapy, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she was, she was there to just be someone that I knew I was safe with. And so that was, that was really helpful. And, and most people in recovery will not recommend getting in a relationship two days after getting out of a program, Yeah, but it couldn't have been a better time, better time for me. <clears throat> you said something there, like you guys, I mean, she wasn't with, without her faults either. And, you know, sometimes that's why people come together so well is because they need one another. I mean, and that's, that's, you had that common ground there. You had a, um, you were very equipped to, to help her. And, you know, she was obviously okay with, your past and you know understood what it was what you had gone through and you both felt really safe with one another and you know that's a word that i don't like to like i feel like it's thrown around a lot and um but that's but really that's that's how you felt i mean and that's really important in a relationship and i always to me that's the that's the most intriguing part of any story is how especially a married couple how how that's affected and how you know the dynamics with that work out because i find that that's the most that's the most sacred relationship that we'll ever have is the one with our spouse and you know that's the one that lasts forever you know so to me it's the most important one um other than our than the relationship we have with with uh, our heavenly father but it's i just so i i just I, I'm always curious and I, I'm, I appreciate you sharing the sharing what all you guys went through as a couple. Yep. So obviously you and I connected, I think through clay, through clay yeah. Conry, the working cows. He's uh, we've, we've come to call clay, like the godfather of podcasts, of, of <laughs> ag podcasts, because he's been like the Genesis for so many of them. And he like, he has created this wonderful community. You know, there's so many people, Brian Alexander, you uh, August horseman who lives, I mean, literally less than 30 minutes away from me down the road. I never knew him until we connected through, through clay. So it's just, it, he, he created such a cool community. So 
long story, you know, cutting to it. Tell me about, tell me about your cows. Tell me about your farm. Well, we're kind of in a weird spot with that right now. So we have, we have been running cows and direct marketing and with the processing situation, the way that it is right now, which our processor is now asking for a hundred dollar deposit per head a year in advance, just to get on the schedule. And he's stopped accepting new USDA labels, which we already had a USDA label, so we're fine. But in my opinion, if he's stopping accepting new customers, the next thing he's going to do is stop allowing us to increase our production. Yeah. And if I can't grow my operation from where it is, it's super humble state right now, I don't really see a, a point to what I'm doing. And so... Sure we've started to kind of look at transitioning to hair sheep just because I can take them to the sale barn and do all right on them. Yeah. So I'm not beholden to our processor and whether he has dates for me or, or anything like that. But that's, that's been a tough decision because quite honestly, sheep are not as cool as cows. I know, I know, (laughs) I know, I know they're not, I know. And I just, I just went out and uh, bought a Pharaoh bull last year. And so I've invested pretty heavily into this little operation. And now I've got to try to find somebody who, you know, realizes what I've got in a place where nobody's heard of Pharaoh cattle company. Right. Right. They're, they're not, they're not looking for that. Like they, like, you know, if we were in Colorado, people would at least know who they are. Sure. Sure. But so, yeah, we're looking at, either scaling back the cows and trying to run more sheep, which we also have border collies. And so the sheep fit really well with that and, you know, having sheep around to train dogs on and that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's, that's where we're at right now. I was actually out worming sheep tonight because I haven't wormed cows in three years, but so far it doesn't seem like you can get away with that with cows. Can't get away with with sheep. No, no. But I think that's uh yeah, that's pretty well documented. I guess you can't, you can't. Now, do you have, what kind of hair? Do you have Katahdin's? Yeah, they're uh, Katahdin, Dorper Cross. And okay. we're, looking, we're looking at some St. Croix because they're supposed to do even better on the parasite resistance than the Katahdin's. Okay. Because I, I really, like I was out today kicking through manure piles and literally 20 or 30 dung beetles. Is that right? Wow. And I don't want to lose that because no. it's really hard to get there. Sure. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I can't just sit there and watch a you die. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, right. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a different, it's, it's so funny how different things are, you know, from species to species, you know, you take a cow, I mean, I get, you get a mama cow, she'll survive on almost nothing. You know what I mean? I mean, she's just, they're so hardy. They're so tough and it's hard. It's hard to lose that. It's hard to go away from that because they're relatively easy to take care of, but then you go to sheep and you have to worry more about predators and you have to worry about worms. And, you know, it's just, uh, and they can't, you know, they, they can't protect themselves like cattle can, you know? So it's a, it's a much, it's, it's a, it's not a lateral movement for sure. It's, it's, there's definitely got, and I, I want to get into hair sheep. I do because of the profitability or or potential profitability of it, but I am scared to death because of what you said, you know, parasites, you know, we have coyotes here and coyotes don't really bother cattle 
too much, but they will bother a sheep, you know, because mm -hmm. they're small enough, especially a lamb. And, you know, I've gotten to a point where now I don't worry much about calving because we have pretty good Cavanese bulls and we've, and, you know, we've, we've worked really hard on the genetics to make that a priority for us. And I don't have to stay up all night with gals calving and, that wouldn't be like that if we were lambing, you know what I mean? So Absolutely. it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a much bigger shift than people think it, think it may be, especially if, you know, they haven't ran the numbers and um, not necessarily ran the numbers, but ran the, uh, the logistics of it. The logistics, I think, of a sheep operation are where it gets you, especially transitioning from a cattle operation. And that's one of the things that actually kind of attracted me to it because, you know, my cows, uh, we've got eight cows and they're pretty much on autopilot. Like I set up fence and I set up a month's worth of fence at a time. Mm -hmm. And then I move cows every day and mm -hmm. there's not a lot of thought that goes into it. And, you know, you may think, well, it'd be cool to try a, you know, try a Cinepole bowl or something like that. But even if you do make a decision like that, your genetic lag is like two years two before years. you see what that mama cow turns out like. Right. What her babies turn two out like. Two years before you knew if it was a good investment or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and by that point, I'm itching to try something new. Exactly. <laughs> so I never know if I made exactly. the right decision. Yeah. Whereas with sheep, you know, I can run it. If I run eight cows, I can probably run. 50 or 60 sheep, hopefully. Yeah. And, and that means I need to run two rams, which means I can try two different things at the same time. And, you know, you can breed you lambs when to cat to a lamb when they're a year old and you got to change all your terminology from calving to lambing. But yeah, <laughs> but I'm pretty excited about it. Plus, you know, you tell somebody, Hey, I've got eight cows and they're like, okay, you got eight cows, but you know, 50 or 60 sheep sounds like a lot more. At well, least. <laughs> no, I mean, well, and, and it's, you know, that, and I think that's a big part of, where did I hear that? I heard that on a podcast somewhere. Um, I might've been on Vance Crow podcast with Chip Flory this week. Anyway, it was somewhere this week and where they were talking about uh, how valuable that is for people. Um, no matter what you can be, it's like you say, you say you have eight cows and you don't feel like you're maybe contributing or as much as you want or whatever. Mm -hmm valid or not i mean it, it still doesn't change the fact but the ability to scale with sheep uh, or goats is is much more you can have many more animals on a much smaller piece of land and that's valuable to people especially people who want to start this way of life you know it's really really valuable and i, I think more the more people that can live in rural america you know, obviously we don't want to change it too much but i mean the more people who are able to live this lifestyle uh the more sustainable the lifestyle is going to be because the the rural economy is going to come so um you made a really good point there and i'm glad you said that you know it's you can you're you're able to run 50 60 sheep and still you feel like you're making you feel more legit more legit yeah i mean yeah i mean whether whether that's not tr you know true or not i mean yeah. that's the way you feel and i mean how you feel is a big part of it no matter what anybody says so I i'm good for you i'm actually very envious of you for that for making that decision because i'm too big of a chicken to do it yet <laughs> and where we are we're pretty suburban okay like 
so finding land is very difficult. I gotcha. mean, if I could just expand, if I could, you know, pick up a hundred acres on a lease, that would be awesome. But that's just not doable. Doesn't right? happen. Yeah. Yeah. The 65 year old dude who got it from his buddy isn't, isn't letting go of that until, you know, until his kids take it over or something. Um, yeah. so, and there aren't a lot of hundred acre pieces around here. So the cool thing about sheep, like you're saying, is if I were to pick up 30 acres, I could scale up in a year right. to take that on versus if I was trying to do that with cows, I'd either have to take out a loan or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you need a long-term lease and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's just, just, a, it's, it's more friendly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it is. For a small operation. I mean, it is. And, you know, it's like you say, the having going to buy a any sort of bull you know a, a good bull is going to cost i mean i i think it, above three thousand dollars you know i mean mm-hmm. it, that's pretty much always what i say and you know when you're only able to to spread that over eight cows you know it's kind of harder to justify but you can get into even better genetics with lambs too and do the things that you want to do because uh you're again goes back to being able to scale that and that's that's incredible. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you making that change. It'll, it'll be hard to watch him go, but I think it's probably the best decision. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, it's hard, man. We get, we get so, and I said this to someone like sentimental, sentimental subsidies are a real thing. You know, I mean, we, yep. I, I, uh, we, I, I am, a, I am very attached to a lot of my cattle and I, it's almost embarrassing sometimes how much that is the case, but you know, you, you've got to make, you've got to make sound decisions and take emotion out of it as hard as that, as hard as that, you know, when you're trying to build a business, which is what you're doing, it's hard to take the emotion out of it, but, uh, you, you've got to. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Daniel, man, I appreciate your time here tonight. I appreciate getting to talk to you face to face like this. We've been, man, it's been probably about two years since you and I have connected online. So it's, uh, it's been, it's about time that you and I had a face to face. So uh, I appreciate you sharing the story with me tonight. I, and I, I hope that what my hope is, is, is sharing the stories like this gives people hope. It gives people whatever they may be struggling with to know that someone can come out of that better, no matter how hard it was. I, I, I hope that that can make a difference for somebody. And I appreciate you uh, offering that to, to the listeners of the podcast. Yeah. There's nothing special about me. If, if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> All right, man. Cool. Well, if anybody wants to reach out to you, how, how do they get a hold of you? So my Facebook account is currently been hacked and right. Facebook oh crap. I forgot about that. Hacked. Oh, shoot. Um, I've, I'll give you my email address. My email address is bootstrapfarmsc, as in South Carolina, at gmail.com. Okay. And I'm going to try to get my Facebook account back, but like they're not being easy to deal with. Oh, they're it, not so. easy to deal with. I know. We, I, had an, I had a problem with Instagram one time, and it's a nightmare. So, man, I, I feel for you on that. That's too bad because, you know, not that you necessarily missed all the crap that goes with facebook but no i, mean, I don't <laughs> you don't but there but there are connections with people i'm sure you do yeah. miss and you know that's a unfortunately that's a very small percentage of what facebook is so i'll i'll put that i'll put your email in the show notes so people can reach out to you if, if they 
want to. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right, man. Thanks again. All right. Thanks for listening to Ag State of Mind. We hope this episode has encouraged you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag State of Mind. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.